that any success I have up here, success defined as communication that comes out of my mouth, any success is by grace alone. And any failure up here, it's, you know, because I've made a choice or a decision or said something that uh, did not reflect uh, the integrity of God's word. With that, I pray that you would always be praying for anybody who's up here, Um, myself, guest speakers, future pastor, we pray someday, soon, Um, people leading in Awana this week, uh, the praise team. One of your jobs um, as a church member is to be praying constantly in your head, the beginning of the message, through the message, that whoever is up here is doing it with integrity. And with that, (laughs) today's a tough message. Uh, Judgment, you know, judging others. So please pray for me that I would uh, handle this with uh, the Lord's integrity, not mine. With that, I'd like us all to consider a few questions going into this. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Who do you focus on most? The flaws of others or yourself? What would others say about you? How will you ask Christ to help you direct your gaze upon him and yourself? I'd like us to consider and carry with us into the morning's message these questions. Questions for us all to think about, myself included, as we listen expectantly for God's word to inform, convict, and transform our hearts and draw us closer to him. I've had a long career judging others. Early in life, I heard about heaven eternal life, and hell, the consequences of sin. I did not want to go to hell, so I checked the box. I asked Jesus into my heart. Even though the Bible does not suggest that I have the power to invite Jesus, the God of the universe, to do anything, but rather, it is he who does the inviting and we the accepting of his heavenly invitation, his grace. I had heard so many times, just ask Jesus into your heart and believe that he is God and you will be saved. And that once you do ask Jesus into your heart, that you are going to heaven and that this is a gift that no one can take away. Whether I was saved in my youth, I don't know, because of my man-made formulaic ritual that was not grounded in scripture. However, I did believe starting at a young age, Jesus to be God. But as I grew older, I also cashed in on what I believed to be a get-out-of-jail-free pass. After all, I was going to heaven. No matter what, why couldn't I just do as I please? So I did. But I was selective with my sins. Once I got to college where there truly are no objective rules for morality governing the difference between what is right and wrong and everything under the sun is promoted as acceptable... I did as I pleased. However, at the same time, 
I would identify behaviors that I did not agree with as being much worse than anything I was doing. I considered my sins not as bad as others and judged others as being worse than me because while I claimed Christ, most of my peers and professors rejected Christ. I had no ground to stand on. Not only was I boldly sinning myself, but the God I claimed to follow was a stranger to me because I had no biblical understanding of him. My knowledge of God and his word was totally superficial, but I used it to judge others. I thought I was on God's team because of a magical prayer I had repeated countless times in my youth. The reality was I was spiritually, biblically clueless. For the first 31 years of my life, I was blessed to always have a Bible, but I never opened it. That is until the Lord, by his grace, humbled me out of the dark and desperate place I was in by opening up his word to me. At the age of 31, I started to read the book I claimed my entire life for the first time. On January 2nd, 2001, my mind and heart were transformed at a Bible study by God's living word. From that moment on, I could not put my Bible down. But sadly, I would also become a different kind of judge. As I grew in my knowledge of the same God I recklessly claimed in my youth, I became a Bible snob a holy rolling know-it-all. Soon after developing a hunger for the word, I would get plugged into a strong Bible church and even take non-for-credit seminary-level courses offered at the church. I would soon be called into ministry and leadership positions both outside and inside the church. Overnight, my life became all about my Bible. As a result, I pridefully celebrated the head knowledge I was gaining by seizing every opportunity to pontificate about anything related to God's word and his church, ranging from what Bible translation people must embrace as the translation, even though that seems to change every few years, to whatever doctrine at the moment was most popular and which pastors have all the right answers for me to regurgitate to which books and authors we should be quoting and following as the ultimate standard. I took every opportunity to lift up not only myself, but other men, as I judged others down in the name of God. The gospel and being a living testimony for Christ and meeting people where they are at in their walk with the Lord were not my priority but rather flexing my spiritual muscles and understanding of God's word in the presence of others was my delight. Thankfully, however, the understanding of God's word that would inflate my head would also eventually humble me to understand his grace, which is grace in itself. As I got deeper into God's word over the years, God would remind me that any head knowledge I do have is a direct gift from him. Listen to what Romans 12, 3 says. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Not only is my ability to understand this and believe God's word 
a gift I do not deserve. But his words also make it crystal clear that believers are given different measures of faith. So while someone like myself might be given a desire to gobble gobble up every word in this book and try to fully understand the wisdom of an infinite God with my finite brain, which is impossible, the church also has a lot of people, like my late mother, who simply and truly receive the gospel and act on it by praying for and loving others and obediently honoring Christ and his bride, the church with their worship and lives inside and outside of the church. But not everyone is meant to be a theologian, a preacher, or a teacher, or has the mental ability to wax philosophical about doctrines in the presence of others. Most believers just humbly live for Christ. In 2020, a year before my family was blessed to start attending Church of the Canyons, the Lord blessed me with a study of the book of Acts. At a Bible study I was attending. The study greatly convicted my heart to celebrate, as was celebrated in the music today, unity within the body of believers, more so rather than discord. And to be careful not to elevate myself in the name of the Lord and to fully embrace the reality that only God knows the condition of anyone's heart and only his Holy Spirit by the grace of Lord Jesus, is anyone, trans- anyone ever transformed? I'm going to go off topic here right now for a second, which my brain doesn't like to work that way. I, I need to stick to my notes. But this morning in prep, I was overwhelmed with the reality of the thief on the cross. He did not have the time to understand and apply all the truths of God's word as he was standing on the border between hell and heaven. But yet, according to our Lord, Jesus, he did accept what was needed to follow Jesus into paradise that day. That is so amazing for me to think about the power of grace. Our Lord had the ability to peer into this man's soul and see whatever fruit or whatever Jesus as Lord needed to see, telling him that this man has received my grace. I find that so very encouraging. Moving on back to my notes. And that when I act like a clever know-it-all by being condescending or prideful with my Bible knowledge and big words from my Bible... I'm not drawing people closer to Christ or helping them to know him, but rather I'm pushing them away by acting like a self-righteous judge. And for this, Jesus has some harsh and sobering words to always remember. Please open up your Bibles to Matthew 7, beginning with verse 1 and reading through verse 6. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, 
then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This morning, we're going to consider three little big words. Do not judge. And if you've yet to notice, our current visual aid is simply a a mirror to reflect on. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time together. Please bow your heads. Jesus, you are the word of God incarnate, the complete embodiment of deity, presented in the flesh, fully God and fully man, so you could perfectly reveal yourself and your heavenly plans through speaking and living out your words to and for your sheep. The same attribute you use to call into creation the world we live in, you use to communicate salvation to those who repent and turn to you as Lord. Your word tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing by your word. It is through your words, you, the word of God, and only you, by which people are saved and transformed. Your words don't just save us, they change us. Jesus, please help us to understand and apply your words to our lives as we continue studying your speech, the Sermon on the Mount. You, Jesus, are not just the author of the words we are given to live, but you are the perfecter. You've not only given us words for life, but you as a man lived them for us, making you the ultimate example of a credible teacher, the most credible teacher to ever live, the truest and most perfect source of instruction for living in this life. As you prepare us for the next... It's in your name, Lord Jesus, alone that we always pray. Amen. So how did we get here? Specifically, how have we arrived at the three little but very big words? Do not judge. These three words punctuate for us the direction and instruction breathed out from Jesus' speech for living in a broken world. But to fully grasp the reasoning behind the three little big words, do not judge, it's important to consider Jesus' wisdom leading up to these three little but absolutely huge and purpose words. So let's review Matthew and consider exactly how we got here. Let's connect the dots that, we have car- that have carried us to this moment, that is where we currently are in Jesus' speech, the Sermon on the Mount. When considering a speech, it's important to consider the credibility of the speaker. This is also known as ethos. And ethos is a result of pathos and logos. Pathos is emotional appeal. Logos is logical appeal. So in order for a speaker to have ethical appeal, the speaker needs to be both emotionally and logically compelling in order to be received as a credible speaker. Matthew chapters 1 through 4 establishes for us the perfect credibility of Christ. 
On a logical level, Christ is prophecy fulfilled. The Old Testament from start to finish outlined exactly how the Messiah, God in the form of a man, would come down from heaven and be born as a child and bring salvation into a broken world for those who receive him. The book of Matthew begins with a name-by-name genealogy documenting every logical step in the arrival of the Christ and the fulfillment of prophecy. Scripture said it would happen, and it did happen just as Scripture said it would happen. God had to offer himself as a man because only the sacrificial death of a man could pay for the sins of man. But the sacrifice, in order to be complete for all men, had to be perfect, which is why God himself stepped in on our behalf in the form of a man. Only he could offer perfection. This is also why we celebrate Jesus as both fully God and fully man. So we have the logos, the logical appeal of the speaker, the objective truth of scripture fulfilled. But what about the emotional appeal, the pathos? Emotional appeal is fully realized in the humble life Jesus lived as a man. While in the world, Jesus did not live like the God of the universe that he is. He came into this world that by cultural standards was in a very compromised position. Following his birth, a godless king, because he too was aware of the truth of prophecy, sought to find and kill Jesus. And the evil king even slaughtered a bunch of babies trying to do so, resulting in Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt and then ultimately to a city called Nazareth. Nazareth had a reputation for being a really bad place. God of the universe lived in a ghetto. Jesus, the child, grew up in very challenging circumstances. And as a young man, things only got more taxing. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus as a man came face to face with the devil himself. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in all the same things that we are. Not some, all. Jesus, the man, faced all. Not some, but all of the temptations in life that we all do. Jesus' life as a man is something we can relate to. Because he purposed to relate it to us by relating with us. And this is the ultimately perfect example of pathos, emotional appeal. Jesus gets us. Not only did he make us, but he has stepped into our shoes and walked the walk. Which is why his speech, the Sermon on the Mount, is so special. It's not just direction from God, but direction from a man who has lived everything he is preaching. Jesus is the greatest example of a credible speaker. Let's review his speech. Beginning with Matthew 5, 1 through 12, the Beatitudes, Jesus lists blessings that result from and reflect a heart transformed by God. Attitudes that reflect receiving his invitation into his heavenly kingdom. The be in the word beatitude emphasizes that we are to be like Christ with our attitudes. That he has both outlined for us with his words 
and modeled for us with his actions, words that he has lived. And Christ says that acting on his words equals blessings. Blessings not the result of work, but the result of his living, breathed out words, transforming the lives that live them. Moving on to verses 13 through 20. Christ declares that all believers are salt and light. Salt prevents decay and promotes permanence. And Christ declares that his disciples are, not should be, are salt of the earth. Believers are God-ordained salt, empowered by Christ to deliver lasting flavor to life to confront the decay of the world. And followers of Christ must also be careful not to sacrifice godly influence by compromising with the sin that defines the world around us. In John 8, 12, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And here he is calling believers light. What a privilege believers have to be this, to be called by Christ the very thing he uses to describe himself, light. But why light? Because light is life. Without natural life, nothing would exist. Light represents the beginning of light on the, life on the planet, and Christ represents life eternal. People are to see the light of Christ in those who claim to follow him. Moving on to Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Jesus tells us how to relate to others. The heart of this passage is admonition to seek peace in all situations and to control our mouths. You know how Christ, ultimately, the ultimate peacekeeper, controlled his mouth in tough situations while living as a man? By speaking scripture. Moving on to Matthew 6, 6 through 4. Jesus tells us that our righteousness and giving are between us and God. Here's a clear warning not to showboat your righteousness for others. It's easy to do. And with this considered, we're told to keep our giving between us and the Lord and to do it unconditionally, just like the Lord. Again, the most credible speaker who also gives unconditionally to all of us. In Matthew 6, 5 through 15, Jesus reminds us of what prayer is. Prayer is worship. Again, not something to be showboated, but an intimate, reverent time of praise, thanksgiving, repentance, and petition that reflects seeking the will of God. And just as Jesus spoke to prayer with perfect credibility, he spoke to fasting in Matthew 6, 16 through, sixteen through 19. Fasting is something believers do. As Fred shared a while ago, it's not just about food. It's a committed amount of time denying yourself something and replacing it with time you focus on God. It's something, again, without showboating, but all believers should be practicing. Moving on to Matthew 6, 20 through 24, Jesus tells us where to focus outside of ourselves. 
Our focus is not of this world, but heavenly. Just as Christ demonstrated when he rejected all the treasures of the world that Satan was offering him. In Matthew 6, 25 through 30, Jesus gives us a cure for anxiety. The more we place our faith in Christ and his words, the more our faith grows and the more our anxiety diminishes. And in Matthew 6, 31 through 34, Jesus reminds us that he is the one leading us. Jesus is God, but he also lived as a man. So not only do we want to obey him first in all things, but we want to follow his lead as a man who's lived it, who also happens to be the author of life. This is the wisest thing any of us could ever do, is follow our creator by his example. And this brings us to our next point. Do not judge. Reading again, Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. This is not a blanket statement calling us to never practice judgment. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 outlines how to practice God-honoring judgment within the church. Galatians 1.8 commands us to call out inconsistency with the handling of God's word. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 instructs us that when a brother has been caught in sin, we are to, with a gentle spirit, help each other. In our scripture for today, Jesus is giving us a warning to practice good judgment and to make wise judgment calls regarding ourselves and the people we interact with so that we remain consistent with our own behavior and words. This is a command to not assume the role of judge as it pertains to the flaws in other people. And a warning to look in the mirror first and self-reflect on our own brokenness before calling out the brokenness of others. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Because the same standard we direct at others, the Lord will use to judge us. In Matthew 5 through 6, Jesus spent 83 verses telling us how to act. And now it's as though he's punctuating it all by telling us how not to act. He does not want us playing judge, but rather he wants us to reflect on ourselves first. In fact, Jesus uses the word your 79 times in the Sermon on the Mount, telling us how we need to be concerned about ourselves. In contrast, the word others is only mentioned four times. In 519, tells us teach others. In 547, tells us greet others, not just Christians. And then 614 and 615 tells us 
to forgive others. That's the only focus it gives us on others. The rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is about us obediently listening to him and reflecting on ourselves. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus makes it clear that he came to fulfill the law. Moral law enforcement here is not the disciples' calling, but living by example is. Only God's word and his Holy Spirit can change a person. And not only does Jesus tell us not to judge, he again exemplified this for us while he lived as a man. In John 12, 47, Jesus said, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And in John 3, 17, it tells us, For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that we might be saved through him. Jesus, as a man, did not come to judge the world. The world was judged through him and he was crucified for it. And while Jesus will return at the end of history to judge the world, um, we were given a mind-blowing reminder of what he will look like this morning by Matt. If you want to see or if you want to read what John saw our great Lord to look like in his glorified state, take a look at Revelations chapter 1. Back to where we're at here. His first time here was to save us and keeping consistent with the life he lived as a man, he is telling us not to judge or we will be judged by the same standard. This is a call to address our own flaws before others. And with this considered, how's your log? Reading on in Matthew 7, 3 through 4. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Does anyone in here not have a log in their eye? It's impossible not to have a log in your eye. Until we're brought to full glory in the presence of our Lord and Savior, our vision will always be obscured. But there are things we can do to work on our logs. It always amazes me how Scripture's all connected. Last week's sermon, Colossians, 1, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 14, was like instructions for log removal. Here's some highlights. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Consider the words keep seeking. We are to, without pause, be maturing with Christ. Setting our minds above and not on the earth. To walk in this life accordingly to avoid abusive speech and dishonesty, to be the new creation that Christ makes us upon true belief, to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, 
patience, and love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And listen how Colossians 3.16 punctuates all of this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to your hearts in God. This is how we negotiate the logs in our eyes leaning on the directions Christ has given us. But what do we do when our heart and actions do reflect Christ and we're still met with rejection and hostility? We're called to practice discernment. And the definition of discernment is good judgment. And please note, there's a difference between judging someone and practicing good judgment. By choosing not to get into a car with a drunk driver, you're not judging that person, but rather you're practicing good judgment for yourself. And as our final verse in Matthew today tells us, this could be a matter of self-preservation, like but not limited to getting into a car with a drunk person. Look what Jesus says here. Do not give what is holy to dogs or to throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under your feet and turn and tear you into pieces. Once someone has knowingly rejected the gospel, it's time to move on. A truly dark heart is dangerous and once identified is to be avoided so as to not be influenced by the darkness. Second John 7 through 11 offers a grave warning for being in the presence of those who truly show themselves as rejecting Christ. Listen to what 2 John 8 says. Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. While we are not to judge others for the things that we need to work on ourselves, we are to practice discernment, good judgment, while handling God's word and our own well-being in a broken world. And this requires knowing what God's word says, living on it and leaning on it, not ourselves, but the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises to those who repent and acknowledge him as their Lord, God, and Savior. In conclusion... I'd like to offer one last bit of instruction regarding judgment from God's word. And that is John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Judging the appearance of others is perhaps the easiest way to fall into the practice of judgment. Have you seen that person's tattoo? Have you seen their piercings? What about the way they dress? Etc., etc., etc. Not only does God tell us not to judge books by their covers, but it's impossible. I mentioned earlier how the Lord blessed me with his words by convicting me to repent of wrongly judging others and to make every effort to turn my focus onto Christ and myself 
when considering sin. But the Lord also has convicted me in another way, another way, another place. That is where I work. I teach public speaking at a secular college campus. And the very first speech that I assign my students is called the cultural artifact speech. Culture for the assignment is simply defined as anything that has contributed to making the person who they are at that moment. I encourage students to go beyond the obvious notion of culture, you know, race and ethnicity, and to give us an intimate look, a unique look into who they are as individuals. I also require them to submit an artifact, an object that represents who they are, their unique culture. I've been collecting stories and artifacts for 26 years. I've got hundreds of objects in my, uh, in my office. This is just one wall. If you came to visit, you'd think I was a hoarder, but it's, it's, it's done with purpose. Picture is a part of my collection. Years ago, teaching at Cal State Los Angeles, a young man gave me a bullet. He started his speech by unbuttoning his shirt and showing us a scar in the middle of his chest saying, this is where the bullet entered my body. He then showed us another scar on his shoulder and he said, this is where the bullet exited. He then went on to explain, he used to be a gangbanger and he was shot in a drive-by shooting. He also said that while he was laying on the operating table down at county, downtown, he could hear the doctors and nurses talking about what a waste of life he was and that if he lives, he'll probably just kill or be killed anyway. The young man explained to the class that he was greatly convicted and scared and even embarrassed. He said he prayed to God, promised to change his life if he lived. I don't know the true condition of that young man's heart, but he did live. He also earned an A in my public speaking class. And soon after, this ex-gang member graduated with honors and was off to medical school. To quote him, so I could help save people. Outside of my classroom, he's probably somebody I would have judged and dismissed. At Los Angeles Valley College, where I've taught for the past 22 years, early in my career, a middle-aged woman walked to the front of the room carrying a book. She explained that she grew up in a rough neighborhood, but unlike many other girls in her community, she was a good girl. She said, I did not gangbang. I did not drink or do drugs or have inappropriate relationships with boys. But one day, the girls in her neighborhood convinced her to go to a party. At the party, everyone was doing the things she knew to be wrong, so she left. On her way home, a stranger jumped out of the bushes and attacked her, resulting in a pregnancy. While on her way to the clinic to have her problem solved, she decided to stop by her church and speak with her pastor. The pastor asked her if she believed that God was sovereign and that he was in control of everything and had a purpose for everything. Yes, she replied. The pastor then said, I'm not telling you what to do, but you might want to really pray and think about what you do do. The woman then said, turning her book around, Today, the two most important things in my life are my God and the daughter I chose to keep. My office is a constant reminder to never 
judge books by their covers, um, which is something I really struggle with, by the way. Let's again consider the questions that we opened up with this morning. What do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you focus on most? The flaws of others or your own? What would others say about you? And how will you ask Christ to help, your, help to you to direct your gaze upon him and yourself? Let's pray. Lord God, today we focused on three little big words. Do not judge. Thank you for paying the price, taking our judgment for our sins upon yourself on the cross so that we do not have to suffer a final judgment but rather have eternity in heaven to look forward to with you because of the price you paid for us. This also means it's not our place to act as judges in regards to the flaws of others but to seek after you and reflect on our own shortcomings before those of others. And in doing so, be living testimonies for others that draw others to you rather than pushing them away. You also call us to comfort others when necessary as directed by your words, to confront others when necessary. Not our own words, but yours. And to practice discernment when negotiating the challenges of a dark world that rejects you so as to handle your word with integrity and protect ourselves from darkness. We know that this is only possible with you and your word, Holy Spirit, as our compass for living. Please help us to do so and intercede for us and our church always. In your name, Jesus.